welcome to The Feminist Shift. Welcome to The Feminist Shift podcast, the podcast that takes a deep dive into issues affecting Waterloo Region and beyond from an intersectional feminist lens. We're your hosts, Roz Gunn and Jen Gordon. Hi, Roz. How are you doing? Hey, Jen. I'm good. So another podcast, another episode, another day. Another episode, another day. Exactly. Um, We have such a cool episode today. Today we're speaking to Jessica St. Peter, but we also have a bit of an update for our listeners. Uh, We are going to be changing some things up. This is going to be our last regular podcast until the fall. When we return in the fall, we'll move into our second season. But in the interim, what are we going to be doing, Jen? So we have a cool opportunity, a network of neighbors. We talked about this a little bit on our last episode. Uh, so network of neighbors is bringing in some higher profile speakers to talk to intersectionality and gender-based violence. And so what we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be offering these as webinars, uh, live webinars, but we're also recording and we're going to flip that into unedited versions um, into our podcast, essentially. And uh, so people who weren't able to attend or want to hear it all again, um, will have the opportunity to listen. So over the the summer you're going to see some um, presentations come through our podcast of these folks uh, so we're still here just in a little bit of a different format and remember you can also tune into the live uh, webinars as well but then those presentations will live on forever yeah so i've been putting them up on our website as we uh, confirm speakers so mm-hmm. uh, the feminist shift.ca slash network of neighbors and our first speaker is Faye Johnstone of Wisdom to Action, and I adore this woman. But we've already talked about that, so let's move on. Okay, so I uh, give us the rundown of today's episode, Ross. So in this episode, we're speaking with Jessica St. Peter from the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region. Uh, she is an incredible feminist and activist. She's been working in the field or the realm of gender-based violence for a number of years now. And our conversation today is specifically looking at gender-based violence in Waterloo Region using the Data for Good report that we've mentioned a number of times. So we'll be talking about things like unfounded rates. We're going to be talking about wait times between calling the police in a sexual violence instance and time it takes for them to arrive on the scene. We're going to be talking about a lot of those procedural pieces uh, around sexual violence and its interactions with the law. All right. We'll dive right into patriarchy alive and well. So Ross, if I remember correctly, last episode, you brought in a storyline of a woman who uh, was deemed by online trolls uh, responsible for the dam or the damming up of the Suez Canal. And Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of not being on the boat, steering the boat, anywhere near the boat or in the same area or country as the boat so patriarchy alive and well uh i bringing in a little bit of a throwback back to a mother's day post that actually our tweet that came through from the nra for mother's day and it said happy mother's day to all nra moms Uh, on top of of millions of other jobs moms have nra moms fight for our right to self-defense while also defending themselves their families and their communities we are forever grateful for these fierce women and so the image on this uh, on this tweet is a mother and daughter. They're both standing um, in front of some green space. They are carrying hers and hers automatic guns, um, and it says, "Mama didn't raise a victim." Uh, I would anticipate the little girl is about in grade four or five. So, um, grown, barf, grown, barf um, <laughs> in a really, really big way. 
so I have some takeaways um, as well as a monologue and then some hope for the future. Okay, so number one, uh, as much as this is a very barf moment um, and wrong moment, it is a very real rhetoric. So it falls in line for me with that sort of age old carrying your keys between your fingers thing. You know, we're taught fear and to protect ourselves from a very young age, um, an age much similar to this grade four, grade five girl. I think that's why this ad is going to work on some women um, and that this is absolutely patriarchy marketing. Number two, victim blaming. Uh, so once again, it's on the victim to protect themselves versus focusing on prevention the act itself holding um, people accountable to their actions although I will argue this is the NRA though so it's not really much of a surprise that they decided to take this approach since their bottom line is getting guns in hands of everybody and then the last thing um, I do believe that this ad is sort of twofold it is a gimmick to sell guns but I also fully believe that the NRA uh, likely feels that this is an intervention that tackles women and girls violence um, and victimization so with that the guns that kill are the guns that save as well so start that out America and you know uh, Canada too and uh, yeah so like I don't know Ross like moms with guns won't wipe out violence um, <sighs> won't wipe out the violence of the patriarchy little girls with guns aren't going to wipe out the violence of the patriarchy even if you're wearing a fluorescent pink shirt with a side pony and your gun is pint size and purple. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to decide if you're being charitable by saying they actually truly believe yeah. um, that this is a way of stamping out violence against women or gender-based violence. Yeah, you're but probably maybe... right. You know, that's what they leaned on for the marketing. But again, it's normalizing women and guns and getting guns into hands. Yeah, I can't wrap my head around like what is going on in their heads? I don't know. The NRA is the most perplexing, infuriating, and just galling. And I mean, there were so many, like, with mass shootings and everything happening, like, I guess the same week, a girl in grade six brought a gun to class and ended up, like, not sh not killing, but uh, hurting her teacher and two other students. So, like, people Yeah, there was, like, the and there was a shooting on really Mother's, like, the same day that ad came out, there was a yes. shooting on Mother's Day. Yeah. And the, the Colorado shootings too, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, a whole bunch of issues, but here's what I'll say. So there are parents out there that I know will see stuff like this and get very um, concerned about their kids, their youth, their future, because this sort of stuff is everywhere. Usually it's not as like trying to be as common and mainstream as the NRA has taken it for this, but these rhetorics do exist. So I just wanted to do a plug around prevention programs. So Ross, your organization, YWCA Cambridge, does some really great work around prevention, um, around violence prevention, whether it's like understanding masculinity or healthy relationships, building self-esteem, confidence, things like that. So if parents are out there um, listening who are like, oh my God, what do we do? Look around in the community because you're going to see programs like this that are actually going to make impacts around violence for future generations and start to squash that so that things like all of us owning our own automatics aren't a realistic thing in the U.S. or in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so much would be solved if we looked more upstream and we did more prevention work around all forms of violence uh, rather than this uh, attacking the symptoms rather than the causes, which is what that advertisement is really, you know, participating and then, in. And then to put the voice in the voice of the little girl, like I just... <laughs> so barfy. So barfy. Yeah, that is definitely patriarchy alive and well. And nothing hurts me more than seeing women participating in patriarchal systems um, and perpetuating these disgusting narratives of, as you said, the victim blaming, but also are we going to address violence by being violent? Yeah. Okay. Done. Next I mean, problem. yeah, I would love to throat punch any 
abuser in my history. <laughs> I would love to throw punch uh, anyone who's done uh, harm to me, but like, it's just not how things work. Yeah. Yeah. So let's welcome our guest. We are so excited to introduce our guest today. Jessica St. Peter is the manager of public education at the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region. Jessica is so pleased to have the pleasure of working with an incredible team of violence prevention educators. As an educator, activist, and advocate for violence prevention, Jessica values the importance of an intersectional feminist approach. Her appreciation of lifelong learning, self-reflection, and accountability help her to connect, cultivate, and appreciate the work of change makers of the past, present, and future. Her Bachelor of Arts in Gender Equality and Social Justice was the ignition of her passion for intersectional feminism, trauma-informed supports and education, survivor-focused programming, and community-based organizing. After completing her Bachelor of Education, Jessica was inspired to utilize different educational strategies to engage in empowering and reflective conversations, activities, and campaigns with diverse audiences focused on ending gender-based violence and oppression. Jessica values the knowledge and insights she has been gifted by many incredible survivors, participants, mentors, and advocates throughout her life and looks forward to the lessons and change ahead. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Jessica. Hi. <laughs> Um, I was hoping that you could tell us just a little bit more about the public education work that you do with the Sexual Assault Support Center. So I have um, 11 years of violence prevention education background and specifically in my role, we work as a team um, at the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region, uh, providing violence prevention programming, uh, whether it's in the community, whether it's in businesses, schools, um, or even within um, kind of our own volunteer program and looking at what are different conversations that can we can have, what kind of space can we create to really reflect on the unlearning we need to do or the oppression that is so normalized in society. And especially when we look at gender issues around violence, uh, when we think about intersectionality and we do anti-racism work, how do we take that into consideration in terms of um, providing information that's relevant, that people see themselves reflected in, and that's applicable. So looking at what are the tangible kind of takeaways that they can have from our sessions, whether they're workshops or lectures, uh, so that it's not just these larger concepts, but really putting it into practice. And it might be conversations around what is a healthy relationship, right? Many of us, you know, never actually see it mentored in our own lives. We haven't, you know, got to the point where it's reflected well in media. Um, we haven't got to the point where it is the norm. So, you know, having a conversation of what is healthy communication? What are, what are boundaries? You know, is it okay to set boundaries? How might it be difficult along the way? Um, and then realizing that, you know, we have this amazing power to be bystanders in situations and take that into an intervention kind of approach and not just um, absorb it and see it, but actually look at how we have the power to stand up for somebody, how we have the power to support somebody, but also that we learn each time we do that, uh, mm -hmm. what will be a more effective way to do it. So we can do workshops that are engaging, we can do lectures which are more informative and takeaways, um, and it just you know, provides a different platform. Uh, and now, you know, virtually, uh, that can look very different than it typically would. But sometimes even just creating a space where people can come together 
and share their experiences helps other people learn and unpack. Absolutely. That sounds great. I love the focus on healthy relationships. I think that downstream, or would you consider it upstream? Downstream, upstream, upstream sort of intervention is so important. And I think it's getting more and more um, attention, which is awesome because it sort of, it stimmies the violence before it starts. Yeah, and realizing that we don't have to wait until somebody's impacted or traumatized mm-hmm. or experiences violence to really look at like, what are those green flags in a relationship, right? And realizing they don't have to be intimate relationships, but those skills are so applicable in all aspects of your life. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't have to spend your 20s figuring out what a healthy relationship is, (laughs) Uh, romantic or otherwise. Um, But that you really have to commit to the fact that you might begin in your 20s, but it's lifelong, right? And every time you meet somebody, you're going to realize, oh, darn, I could have done that differently. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Okay, well, let's talk about the past year, COVID and the pandemic. So drawing a comparison between pre-pandemic and now, tell us what trends or changes you are seeing around sexual violence. Um, What was the state before? How has the pandemic impacted things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a a wild ride in terms of making our services available, um, realizing that we've never shut our doors or stopped supporting survivors, but at the same time, realizing that survivors still are seeking support and that that there's still experiences of sexual violence happening, uh, that the barriers to accessing services have increased, but at the same time realizing that for some folks, virtual support, whether it's via phone, email, uh, video, has also kind of increased their ability to connect. Um, And especially when we're looking at, you know, right now with the changes and children being home all the time. And what does that mean that might've limited people from accessing services previously where now they can maybe do it within their own space. But at the same time, you know, you're also in a home and you potentially could be in that home with someone who is your perpetrator or is the person causing harm. Uh, So how do you access those services? We've also seen a really drastic increase in terms of uh, requests and referrals for support around online sexual exploitation uh, and and you know we can't we can't deny that everyone is online more than even before and you know we were lived in such a digital world then so looking at how spaces that typically wouldn't have been spaces for grooming and recruiting and exploiting are now being kind of infiltrated by perpetrators or Um, are becoming spaces that are less monitored and have access to especially young folks who are online a lot more. Uh, So responding to those supports, but also realizing that the pandemic has closed a lot of spaces that people gathered for support or places that people gathered for Mm -hmm. self-care. So realizing that survivors you know, who may have accessed our services previously have been triggered by things that are happening in the news, have been triggered by being in isolation and needing to access services again in their healing journey. Um, So seeing people return, um, seeing kind of situations, uh, increased tension in homes. And the unfortunate thing is, is that, you know, as a sexual assault center, we support a lot of folks who experienced childhood sexual abuse and never seeked support 
when it happened until far, far later in their life. And now we have this year that's happened where we've had children in isolation um, from typical people that they might seek support from in a lot of times. So wondering what is that going to mean down the road? What is that going to mean for future children in terms of their healing journey or exposure to trauma? Because we know that a majority of sexual violence occurs within the home by someone we trust. So people think, well, why is sexual violence even happening? Because the bars aren't open. Why is sexual violence even happening? Because you know, it's not like you can go to a big party or those kind of things, but that's one of the misconceptions, right? Is that it's that stranger danger that was so often talked about. And so looking at the conversations around the shift in re-emphasizing what is consent, and we know so few people actually understand consent, but now it's like trying to get across that consent applies in the virtual world in the same way that it does in the real world. So we've seen a lot of people reaching out because of concerns of what's happening online or comments that are being made. So looking at especially gaming platforms and spaces where, you know, whether it's discord or offshoots from games uh, where people connect and how that can be, you know, utilized uh, as a form of sexual exploitation or a grooming or luring process, uh, especially when we talk about our anti-human trafficking program. Is a lot of your work responding to the sort of victim or the survivor of these instances? Is there any, do you know, research or is there work being done to infiltrate those spaces where the violence is happening? So for instance, on these gaming platforms, is there even discussions around infiltrating the spaces and putting the onus on the platforms for creating safer spaces for participants? Well, I know that different academic institutions, like professors are researching how those spaces are utilized, especially looking at toxic masculinity in those spaces and how it can lead to violence and how it normalizes violence and perpetuates violence. Um, And then connecting with those larger corporations who have control over those environments. But I know from our kind of prevention stance in public education, looking at accessing those spaces to become part of them for conversations, right? So that we can do that bystander work within those spaces, whether it's um, using them because those are already platforms that youth are engaging in. So how can we create space in there for those conversations around healthy relationship consent uh, boundaries, but also providing an opportunity so that if something is happening in there, people know, okay, there are supports available, right? But it is difficult to get into. And it's, it, you know, some people are very protective in terms of, you know, you have parents who are, I only let my child in groups where I know everyone who's in there. And then there are spaces you know, that are just free game um, in terms of entering. And so trying to navigate that and also protect the safety of the individuals in that space, as well as our team, uh, is a constant kind of struggle uh, in terms of what is the benefit, but always just doing that awareness piece of there are resources available if you're experiencing anything within this space. So it's definitely a need. And as we see, it's changing constantly, right? The idea that we have to know, okay, what are security features on TikTok and how can you protect yourself in this space? What are features of Instagram? What are features of, you know, Discord? What are features of 
like Fortnite and things like that, you're constantly learning and they change so rapidly that, you know, those are areas of research that are going to be constantly, constantly needing kind of expertise in. If you think of it too, Ross, like um, just to sort of add on, Jessica, to what you're talking about, if you even think of our more mainstream social media platforms and even over the last year, the ethical conversations that have come from, are you just a platform? Uh, Do you have responsibility, Um, both legal responsibility, risk aversion responsibility, but also a moral responsibility? I think that there's a lot of conversations in there. But we also have to acknowledge that people have been able to develop these spaces through a variety of different means over a variety of different platforms, even within the last year of completely revolutionized how they do that gramming and other things. So as long as there is a platform somewhere... (laughs) or Reddit board somewhere, um, you know, there's still opportunity for those. So there is sort of a responsibility for, I think, for folks to, who are doing prevention work to be present. But I think there's also a responsibility around the moral ethics of uh, uh, some of these folks. But in terms of an intervention point, um, which I would consider, Jessica, that's sort of what you guys are doing by showing up in those spaces. I want to switch us over to talk a little bit about the Data for Good report. Uh, So that report uh, revealed that there's been a drop in the rate of unfounded sexual violation allegations, uh, which we all know, from 19% in 2014 uh, to 5% in 2018. Um, But there's still a higher unfounded rate and lower rates of charge among sexual assault comparative to the crime of assault. So essentially, even though we've seen unfounded rates go down, we're still not seeing um, comparable results around unfounded rates and rates of charge um, that we would see for someone who was just, I don't know, regular assaulted. Um, So uh, to me, uh, this really stood out in the report because I felt that it exemplified that there's that we still have an issue around the unfounded uh, rates. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit about the task force uh, that's taken on quarterly reviews of sexual assault cases in an effort to tackle some of those unfounded classifications. Uh, SASC is a member of that, um, as so is YWCA Cambridge, that's Ross's organization, and YW Kitchener Waterloo, that's mine. I don't feel like it's like super public size that this uh, group exists. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what uh, that group looks like, your process, and how maybe it's impacted some of those unfounded rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Like when we talk about the shift in unfounded, and we talk about even the initial kind of Globe and Mail report and coding, right? When you're, when you're dealing with someone who has control over how they code something, uh, what that means and how that can alter those numbers, right? So does it mean that there are less unfounded cases or are they ending up somewhere else? And what does it mean when you have such a large attrition between uh, reporting and actual charges laid along the way? So it's interesting to be part of that process, to sit in that space. And, And you're right, they are really kind of unsung heroes in terms of the importance of having a case review structure the way it is, right? To have uh, violence against women, gender-based violence advocates uh, sitting in that space, um, taking the time to really explore uh, how the investigation went from beginning to end, what that looked like, being able to kind of identify those myths, rape myths that still exist and that are being perpetuated, being able to explore the gender inequality of sexual violence, what that looks like, uh, what are areas of growth in terms of, you know, responding to diverse needs within our community, whether that's acknowledging uh, racialized experiences, disproportionate Mm -hmm. representation of racialized folks, 
acknowledging kind of the complexity of supporting uh, survivors with intellectual disabilities, you know, what skills are necessary. Mm -hmm. And then being able to look at all of those pieces and come up with what are kind of recommendations, what are ways that would align with the values of the people sitting in that space, right? So the VAW, the gender-based violence organizations, um, to assure that the process is survivor-focused in the sense that it is trauma-informed, right? So making sure that the way questions are asked are not presumptuous of kind of someone's trustworthiness or what actually happened or victim blaming. So coming together, reviewing those cases, then putting forth recommendations, um, supporting and advocating around training, uh, and then really looking at the power of whether it's, you know, the organizations that are in that space doing case review or the community wraparound that is available um, between policing, the wise, you know, um, women's support services, things like that, so that all of those services are well aware of what they offer, right, and how they could support individuals in each of the cases that they look through. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so when you say things like in making recommendations around training and such, I'm assuming that's like recommendations for our response system like for the police and for whomever else is involved in the case itself? Yeah, it might be, it might be looking at training around victim blaming, training around barriers to reporting, training around the neurobiology of trauma, right? So an awareness of the difference in someone's recall of events immediately to an acute sexual assault or allowing time um, for those memories and pieces to come about, asking questions that, you know, are not expected to be linear in order to be true, right, but realizing that there might be uh, questions that can engage a survivor's senses that bring back memories instead of, well, you can't remember every detail or um, because we saw, you know, unfortunately, specifically like the Gomeshi case, how, you know, when those details don't Uh, follow a very linear structure, it can be dismissed, or it can be used to discredit the person. um, And how the and even that process in itself, right, if there, for various reasons, if there isn't a guilty verdict, or there aren't charges laid, uh, that is often used to kind of perpetuate additional rape myths that women lie about being sexually Mm -hmm. assaulted, right, and the harm that that causes. Mm -hmm. And especially if there are repeat cases, right? So if you have a survivor who experiences multiple sexual assaults and reports them and the first, you know, one didn't result in charges, what kind of assumptions are made about that individual? That's great. Thanks, uh, Jessica, for sharing a little bit more about what that community is doing. I find it really just a, a fascinating and awesome community intervention that I think is really, well, I mean, we already see the benefits of it, but I think it's going to have like a lot of um, long-term impacts. Um, and I think that the community needs to know that this is also work that's like off the side of your desk. Like it's everything you need to do around this, but it's also, you know, everybody putting something down and coming together and really taking a look at these cases and figuring out how as a community we do better by folks. I think that even when it initially started and, you know, the Philadelphia model was referenced in the initial kind of conversations as kind of an aspiration or goal you know, we initially saw some 
police forces jump on to the idea of case review, some very hesitant, some still hesitant and resistant, but also, you know, realizing that provincially there are kind of supports in place to help those uh, committees in terms of providing us with training of information that we might not be aware of. Like I know for myself, understanding coding and understanding different Mm -hmm. things, you know, and, and even trying to understand the judicial process and how those things happen, you know, is so complex and the need for advocacy is so important because navigating those systems in a, you know, good frame of mind is difficult, let alone in a traumatic state, Mm -hmm. right? So it just kind of highlighted to me the importance of not only myself and our education team, but also uh, the counselors and advocates at our sexual assault center and our community partners knowing what is that experience going to look like so that if survivors choose to report that they're well informed um, of what that procedure will look like and have an understanding of what is it that they're hoping to get from it, right? Because a majority of uh, individuals who report, the number one reason they're reporting is because they don't want it to happen to somebody else, right? And so uh, preparing people for how different the outcomes can be and how to make sure they're supported in that process so that it's not reflective um, of their value or their experience, but that they deserve that support and recognition. It's interesting that you bring up the coding piece um, because when I was sitting with the data for good folks with this report and um, kind of figuring, well, they were trying to um, in very plain terms, <laughs> teach me data in an hour um, and, and share with me sort of some of the findings and where they also um, struggled. And one of the areas they struggled was the coding, because I don't think we realize um, in terms of if you are uh, reporting through the police system and, and doing that judicial process, et cetera, there are codes that it's almost like a choose your own adventure, except you have no choice on that adventure. Like a code completely depicts where you end up. And uh, you're definitely right with the unfounded rates. A big part of that is just differences in coding, right? So we're now not immediately saying, okay, that's unfounded, but it's also still sitting um, and still bottlenecking in, in a lot of um, ways because we're not seeing necessarily more charges coming from those unfounded. So it's almost like we're, we're, we're not dismissing, not we, it's not us at all, but like the, the police aren't dismissing, but they're not, like we're not necessarily seeing the action on the other side yet in terms of, you know, how we're dealing with those cases that are now just sitting in limbo. But coding is also interesting because this next question that I have also ties into how calls into uh, dis- like dispatch uh, coding. So there's a stat that sat with me really heavy with the data for good report. And actually I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, and it comes down to a, a point in time, one hour and 12 minutes. So one hour and 12 minutes is the average dispatch delay time for a 911 call disclosing sexual violence. So if you take that uh, one hour and 12 minutes and compare it to the average for all other crimes, all those other codes, typically the average for all those other crimes is 31 minutes. So we're looking at it being 2.3 times longer for police to come out for a call of sexual around sexual violence. So, you know, there's there's a number of different reasons for this, how we code, et cetera, et cetera. But it just gets me completely worked up um, because I think it still shows the hole in the system for reporting. Um, and it kind of gives a little bit of the same symbolism as the attitude that went into Uh, the attitude towards sexual violence that went into those sort of horrendous unfounded rates exposed by Robin Doolittle. So according to these stats, I would have a better chance of getting police attention for a traffic violation or a minor 
accident and then a sexual assault. So I want to know from your perspective, working in with folks who have experienced uh, sexual assault, uh, what a leg time of an hour and 12 minutes, what might that look like for someone who has just experienced a sexual violence or trauma or maybe or made the decision to formally report? You want the worst case scenario or the best case scenario, right? Like that's the unfortunate part in that situation is that I can hope that for that hour and 20 minutes, a survivor is sitting in the comfort and safety of a community partner skilled to support them and has given them an informed kind of outline of what the process will look like. I can hope that that person has possibly accessed medical attention necessary prior. I can hope that the officer that responds in that time is specifically trained and skilled in responding. That the difficult part is that it's also a specialized team, right? So looking at what does that stat reflect? Does that stat reflect just anyone responding? Does that look at specific acute sexual violence, historical sexual violence? And then also touching on kind of what I talked about before around the neurobiology of trauma. So does that time, is that person safe, feel supported during that period of response where there isn't that pressure to, for the investigation piece, it's not a matter of like police show up, you're answering questions immediately, but okay, I'm in a safe space. I'm getting support. It can look very different, right? That's, that's kind of where, my thinking goes because it is, it's a lot of unpacking in terms of when we have that stat of what's happening in that moment. You know, are we guaranteed that in an hour and 30 minutes, that person is safe and supported and is receiving the best, most informed support as a result? Or is it that they're being left there as a result of the fact that there's so so much stigma Um, and disregard for sexual violence or a lack of urgency in responding. So yeah, I myself, like even thinking about that, you know, it's so worrisome. But at the same time, you know, when you're saying a car accident, right? It's like, okay, who's the closest officer in proximity? Are they dispatched to that space? What does that time look like? Whereas there's also that hope that the person who shows up is going to have very skilled response to dealing with the situation and also around historical sexual violence, right? Am I reporting? Is that time to make sure that I'm in a safe space to do that? Do I get some kind of uh, control over that connection and what that looks like? So I would, yeah. I mean, it can go either way. You're absolutely right. Um, I think in particular, an hour and 12 minutes just to get to the door is a little insane to me for any traumatic experience yes. that is being reported, whether it happened an hour and 12 minutes ago, or if it happened 10 years and 12 months ago. Sure. So I think part of what really bugs me about the statistic, it, you know, the lag time and the fact that, you know, I know how much, it takes to get somebody to the point of accepting our system enough to want to try and make um, a case and, and, um, and how our system doesn't really necessarily um, yet support survivors first. Right. Like it's, it's definitely, 
it's adapting to try and be better responsive, but it doesn't, it doesn't start from the perspective of, okay, this happened. It starts with the perspective of you need to prove your case, like you've been talking about. So, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like more people need to be trained in responding like that, that number needs to be lower because if you're experiencing trauma and you're finally coming forward with it, and this is the route that you've decided is going to hopefully get you the results that you know you need that's a really shitty way excuse my language but that is a really horrible way to start the process right is to sit and wait for an hour and 12 minutes well i was just wondering so waterloo regional police has two trained officers who are trauma-informed that they've received that training i don't i i don't know if anyone remembers when that happened it probably happened as another result of that uh, unfounded piece by robin doolittle from global mail is it possible that the delays are that they're waiting for these two officers to respond? I have no, like, I, I can't, I can't say, but like Jen was saying, I, it's terrible. Like no one should, we know how few survivors actually report. Mm-hmm. And the idea that sitting in that, even wondering, right. Pondering what is that response time delay about, right. Is it reflective of the validity of my case? Is it reflective mm-hmm. of the process I'm beginning right? The hesitation that even to then have that guide the beginning, right? So, so does that set off, you know, how am I going to be perceived? How, how is this experience going to roll out? What is that going to look like? I would imagine yeah, the- there's a few, there's a few uh, things that could speak to the delay. So coding is another one, right? So if we're talking situations where it's retroactive, so, you know, Two months ago, I experienced a sexual assault. I'd like to report it and start this process. Um, is very different than someone's trying to sexually assault me. Um, and the response times would be different for that sort of thing. I guess where I'm struggling is because if, like when I was talking with the data for good about this sort of statistic and stewing on it, part of their hypothesis was that it did kind of come down into coding as well in terms of how they look at what needs a response right now in terms of sort of crime and action um, versus what is a retroactive sort of reporting. Um, So I guess, again, I would push back and sort of say, that's fine. But in situations of trauma, does that get the same code as, hey, I think somebody stole a chocolate bar three months ago from my bodega down the street. <laughs> you know, I need someone to come and take a look at that. Technically, with these statistics, I'm going to get somebody there faster than if I was sitting at home trying to report a sexual assault. So like, you know, like the, the, the coding we can assume that codes happen across a spectrum that in some cases police are showing up immediately for sexual assault situations. And sometimes they're showing up slower, but it's the average, right? If you think of every crime as having sort of that retroactive as well as immediate um, need for somebody, they're still 2.3 times longer for sexual assault. So I would imagine that that training piece and and who they're sending for responding and, and that process around that is uh, probably, you know, speaking a lot to that. I'm sure there's attitudinal things in there because we're still working through a lot of that stuff and, and how Unfounded came in. But in general, there needs to be a little bit more robust answer in that, I think, for me to be satisfied with the fact yeah. that my candy bar situation doesn't get looked at before it's sexual assault trauma. And I think it, I definitely would like to know more about that and, and how how that comes to be, whether it's coding, training, because yeah. Rosalind, like what you were saying around the trauma-informed piece is that if that's the case, you know, we all have a responsibility as services of the servers of the community to be trauma-informed, right? The reality that, you know, if we 
go with one in three women experience sexual violence or, or gender-based violence. Uh, if we go, you know, to trauma across the spectrum of what trauma looks like, that's something that we all should be integrating Absolutely. into any service we provide, right? So how do we make sure that that's um, something that isn't considered a specialized skill, but an expectation in terms of serving the public? Yeah. And it's a great lead into my next question though. And it's about volume. So I don't know if folks remember the 2019 Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives um, report, the best and worst places to be a woman in Canada, but Waterloo region was ranked dead last for women's safety. The region's sexual assault incidence rate is per population higher than the national average and the provincial average with 123 crimes per per 100,000 population in 2018. And we see calls for police trending upward around sexual violence. Our shelter users and prevention and life skills programs are seeing more and more folks disclosing. Your organization, SASC, demands have blown up. What do you think our community needs to be doing collectively and individually around prevention? Um, But is it a community response? I mean, we've really just pointed out the fact that that the police are not well enough equipped to deal with the sheer volume of sexual violence incidents in the region. It definitely you know, needs to go from a responsive approach to a preventative approach, right? Like investment. I I would never want any survivor to go unsupported. I would never want someone to seek support and not have access or wait that delay that was talked about in terms of a response. But at the same time, there needs to be more emphasis on the prevention piece and how it needs to be an aspect of all of our environments, right? Whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in a school, whether that's within our own homes and having those conversations around realizing that those conversations are important, that it's not about waiting until someone has experienced violence uh, to respond, but to have those spaces and conversations taking place all the time and realizing that we are mentors in every way we interact, right? We're mentors in the relationships we have. We're mentors in the conversations we have with children. Uh, We're mentors in what we stand by and allow to happen, what we don't question and realizing that it's not just about an individual, but that collectively we need to change that culture, right? Our, our actions matter, but we also have to realize that if we want that shift to change, that it needs to happen at all levels. Well, that's great. So anybody who wants to continue doing some of that individual work, keep an eye out on SASC. They're always doing a variety of different workshops and skill building opportunities. You know, Jessica and her team at the helm of that. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today and sharing your wisdom and Mm -hmm. uh, allowing us to work through some of the elements of this data for good report uh, with your expertise and knowledge. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that these kind of things exist, right? For people who just want to get started, want to unpack further, and know that it's it's not taboo to be a feminist. Mm-hmm. Amen. Uh, Feminists of the world, unite. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jessica. No problem. With that, thank you for joining us on the Feminist Shift podcast. You can follow our advocacy work by heading over to thefeministshift.ca or on social media under the handle Feminist Shift. You can also sign up for our email list and get notified of all of our upcoming events and workshops. There are lots of exciting things coming up for us. Feminist Shift is a capacity building initiative between YW Kitchener-Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge, funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada. Catch you all in September. September.